Father, help us this morning as we would seek to understand you and your will better. And Lord, we would ask that you would use your Holy Spirit to do that and also to empower us to respond appropriately. Allow us to see the significance and the love and compassion and truthfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we would respond to him appropriately and find hope in him. In Jesus' name, amen. Please join me, if you would, in opening your Bibles to the sixth chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. There are four Gospel accounts, accounts of Jesus and the good news regarding him. Uh, Typically, I like to think of uh, this in terms of a movie set. There are four different camera angles uh, capturing the same thing, sometimes from different perspectives but essentially the same thing. And Luke, uh, Dr. Luke, as he would have been known in his day, a medical doctor, is seeking to capture the facts, capture things for us so that we might understand things from his perspective and, and see the details about Jesus. Luke 6, verses 1 to 11, is about conflict. Who likes conflict? Well, I don't want you to put your hand up if you like conflict, because if you like conflict, most people don't like you, right? We don't want to know. People who who like conflict are the kinds of people that we might invite over to our house once. And then we find out that they're the conflict lovers and something's not right. And it's natural for us to, to not like conflict. But here's a conflict that we would or should appreciate. I'm not suggesting Jesus loved conflict, but I would suggest to you that Jesus loved you and loved me enough and those around him to engage in conflict. And he did it time and time again with religious leaders. Now, why would that encourage us? Why, why should we say Jesus loved us so much that he engaged in conflict whenever he had opportunity? That seems rather strange and it doesn't seem right and it doesn't seem like we should leave here this morning saying, Lord, thank you so much that Jesus engaged in conflict what seems to be like all the time. Unless we realize that the religious leaders were telling lies, misrepresenting God in the name of God, heaping up more rules, more regulations, saying things that aren't true, misleading, deceiving. And Jesus hits them head on, not because he's a mean guy, but because he's the truth incarnate. And because he loves the sheep enough to expose and chase off the wolves. And so as we read these kinds of accounts, and these won't be the first and they're not the last, remember there's a greater purpose. Jesus loves the sheep enough to do this. And so we would praise him in engaging in this kind of conflict conflict for us. So that we would, how about this? So that we would be set free from all the human tradition, rules, regulations, and all these things that constantly bring us down and drag us down and depress us. How about this? So that we can see Jesus for who he really is and for what he really did. The meaning of doesn't have to be perverted. We can see it clearly in part because Jesus confronts the lies. Okay, ready? Hope you're ready to worship Christ for being willing to do this for us. There are two different occasions. They have to do with 
the Sabbath. And so we're going to be reading in just a moment, verses 1 to 11, occasion 1, occasion 2, regarding the Sabbath. Just by way of introduction, um, Sabbath is what day of the week? It's the seventh day of the week, which is Sunday, right? No, that's how you have your Google calendar set up, maybe, like I do. But no, actually... Sunday is the first day of the week. Sabbath is the last day of the week. It would be Saturday. The Jews call it today Shabbat. And so Shabbat is Sabbath. It's the last day of the week. It's part of the Ten Commandments. God gives Sabbath as a law, but He does give it for rest. It's the day of rest. He gives it for the good of His people, and they're to rest from all that they've done, but they are to do it. Just listen, if you would, um, reading from that Ten Commandments section, Exodus 20, beginning in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day. Remember Shabbat. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, to keep it distinct. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested. He Sabbathed, if you will, on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That's Exodus 20 verses 8 to 11. Super important because God gives it as a gift for the benefit of his people The Jews see that as very important, and rightfully so. But we're going to see there's radical conflict over the Sabbath. Let's go ahead and look at this first occasion. Beginning in verse 1, we read, On on a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. And that's pretty incidental. What in the world are you doing, Luke? Oh, I guess Luke is just being a historian. He's trying to describe some of the, be- the, the, the normal things that they were doing. There's no reason for alarm. This is like saying, on our way to Kansas City, we stopped at a rest area. We stopped at McDonald's. I mean, what are they doing? They're doing what you would normally do. You're walking somewhere and you're hungry. And if you're in the first century in the Middle East, you would see, oh, there's some grain. I'm going to p- pick some, eat some. No problem. No problem whatsoever. But as we're going to see, there is a problem. It's not with that. It's the accusation. Look at verse 2. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? They're spying on him, no doubt. Who in the world would pay attention to what rest area you stopped at? But they're they're having a problem with Jesus, and so they're going to go after his disciples, and he's growing in popularity, so they got to find some dirt on him, and they're like the official Sabbath police. Sabbath is serious, it's from God, so we're going to find him doing the wrong thing on Sabbath, and if we can prove that, we can prove he's not really the Messiah, he's not really the promised one, and so they're like, aha! Now do notice, the aha is not that they're stealing what's not theirs. In fact, according to Old Testament law, just like the Sabbath is according to Old Testament law, according to Old Testament law, it's perfectly fine to pick from your neighbor's field and eat. Deuteronomy 23, 25 would specify that. You know, as long as you're not going through with your basket, filling it up so you can take it to market and make money off your neighbor's labors, it's just ordinary. You're not going to stop it for fast food. So if you're on a journey to your neighbor's house or wherever you're going, you're hungry, perfectly fine to say, I think I'll have me a little bit of that. 
eat it, everything's fine, everything's good to go. That's not the issue. The issue is they're working on the Sabbath is what the accusation is in verse 2. They're working on the Sabbath. Now, I don't know what's going on here in their minds. Something, they have a screw loose. They've got, a, they've got some Phariseeism going on here after all their Pharisees. But when, when we read verse 1, we don't go, they're working. In fact, no one in their right mind would go, they're working. But the Pharisees are saying, they're working. In fact, that's not just a little snack on the way. What that is, according to our tradition, did it on the roof from last week? Tradition. You thought you were done with me singing last week. They love their traditions. They thrive on their traditions. And according to our traditions, our sacred, supposed, holy traditions, that's harvesting. And you, and we're looking at that going, huh? That must mean what it is, you know, that must mean what it is in Greek or something, because I don't see it. Well, it, it is what it is. According to their so-called sacred tradition, it's a fourfold violation of God's law. Now, that doesn't mean that's what it says in God's law, but according to sacred tradition, fourfold, quadruple offense. Number one, they're reaping. Number two, they're threshing. Number three, they're winnowing. Number four, they're preparing the food. <gasps> Scandalous. According to the Mishnah, I'm not an expert in the Mishnah. I've never read the Mishnah. I don't play an expert in the Mishnah on television. I don't know much about the Mishnah at all. But I read a lot of commentaries on the New Testament and... Uh, According to Daryl Bach, the Mishnah at one place that outlines these 39 rules about Sabbath, about Shabbat, in one place the Mishnah itself says, and I quote, the rules about Sabbath are as mountains hanging by a hair. What an image. Even the Mishnah itself claims to be a big burden. Our rules that we've come up with, quote-unquote, sacred tradition, through our legalism, it's like a mountain dangling by a hair. What would that be like? It would be ready to break. It's so heavy, and there's no way you can uphold it. And, and for you and for me, and we understand the bigger picture, we're going, who in the world would like that? You know who would like that? Self-righteous people. We're going to stick our chests out and we not only follow the Bible for everyone to see, but we follow the extra rules that have been handed down to us from generation to generation. And we follow, uh, we live according to a higher standard. And, and it's so hard to be faithful. Oh, sometimes I feel like I'm just going to snap, but I am so godly. Right? It's kind of the idea. Isn't it ironic that it's called Sabbath? Rest? It's not meant to be a burden. It's meant to be a relief. God gives it to His people so that they can... <sighs> and the human heart so many times, and we'll talk about our human hearts later on, we just we turn it upside down and we turn it inside out and we, we, we don't rest in God and His provisions and, and what was intended for good we make bad so that we can look good maybe. Everything's turned upside down. It looks like work. 
if and when you have opportunity to go to Israel someday, you'll be there probably because of the length of stay on Shabbat on Saturday. And the strangest things happen, the thing happens when you get on an elevator. The elevators stop on every floor. The elevators stop on every floor because, as every right-thinking person would know, to push the elevator buttons would be work. And you say, what? What? I know firsthand because one of my kids got yelled at in German because she was pushing the buttons. And the word my daughter did know was kindergartner. Something about a stupid kindergartner. We love our laws. We love our traditions. They make us feel like we're faithful whether we are or we're not faithful. And again, let's not just throw stones at other people. We'll talk about maybe that little Pharisee that lives inside of each of us later on. I'm so thankful that Jesus comes and Jesus, as the light, shines the light on, can I say, stupidity of thinking that extra rules and regulations somehow leads to faithfulness. It's bizarre what you do and bizarre what I do. It's bizarre what they're doing. And Jesus, because He loves us, comes to earth and rescues us. How about from from religion? From human-made religion. I love that text that Pastor Mike read earlier when he read Colossians 2 and 3. This humanly derived religion, this legalism, this asceticism that somehow we, we invent and create. And oftentimes it's based upon God's law, but then we're going to have our own law to make it better. And that really is how it gets us there. Just wonderful that Jesus loved us enough to come and totally expose this for the, the craziness that it is. I want you to love Christ more. I want to love Christ more because He's the one who sets us free from this kind of thing. He sets us free from ourselves sometimes. He's a great Savior. And we're seeing Him in action here. Well, let's go ahead and move on to verse 3 where it says, And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did? For, oh, oh, first of all, you know, I, when I first start reading that, have you not read, I kind of want to do one of these, you know, and hope this is somehow bomb-proof, ammo-proof. Because Jesus has a reputation, if you read the Gospel accounts, of saying, have you not read? And when you hear, have you not read, you know, duck. Because he's locking and loading. Of course they've read. They're Pharisees. They're, they're, they're experts in the Bible. They, they know all the facts. They know, they know all the ins and outs. You could start quoting a Bible verse to them and they could finish your sentence, even the minutiae kind. They know. And then where he says, have you not read uh, what David did? Totally insulting them. Of course they knew what David did. David, I mean, David and Abraham are like the two central heroic figures in the whole Old Testament. They absolutely know what David did. And Jesus is taking truly is said in scripture and showing them that their extra rules and regulations have perverted the whole thing and by so doing helping us to be set free their agendas their traditions their details have gotten in the way have you not read verse 3 says when he was hungry david he and those who were with him How he entered the house of God, that would be the tabernacle then, 
and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. Referencing 1 Samuel 21, 1 Samuel 22. They would have known 1 Samuel 21. They would have known 1 Samuel 22. Let me just take you back to Scripture here, is what he's doing. Now, a couple of things to notice, I think, there. One would be, Jesus is, is making a point that would help us to understand that the law is not against the law. I mean, the law is not against itself. Scripture isn't against Scripture. Um, God gave, just as He gave Sabbath for good, um, here, here in this case, this bread is for the priests. It's spelled out that way in Scripture. It's reserved for them. But that, that somehow isn't unreasonable. It, it can't live in the same world that says love your neighbor. It can't live in the, it's not that it can't world in, live in the same world that says, well, there's, there's a dire need here and he needs something and so we're going to help him. He's calling them on that level, I think. I mean, God made, made these laws. Indeed, he did. but you can take it and make the law seem like it's against the law. So he calls them on that level, but maybe more significantly. David is not an ordinary guy. I think Jesus is all about showing himself as the greater David. Because as Jesus said, haven't you guys read David ate that bread? David, David shouldn't have eaten the bread according to, to the law, looking at it from one aspect. But he had a real legitimate need, and so they allowed him to eat instead of starve, which would be not loving. That would be against the law on another level. But you see, Jesus wants them to say, yeah, but David is extraordinary. Granted, I'm reading between the lines here, but given all the flow of things when it comes to David, I think that's going on. No, they wouldn't have said, oh, David, man, he was a bad guy. David had no business eating that bread. We're going to talk to God about that when we get to heaven someday. They would have acknowledged David is David. David is the king. David is special. David is anointed by God, which is what Messiah means. And I think Jesus would have welcomed that. In one sense, I think this confrontation is purposely leading us to that. Because what we see in the gospel accounts is Jesus is the greater, the ultimate David. He needs to be if he is the Christ, if he is the Messiah, if he is the Savior. Jesus is all about showing himself to be the ultimate David the fulfillment of God's promises made to David. And I realize some of you are thinking, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm new to the Bible. Uh, maybe you're not new to the Bible, but you're still going, I don't know all the David kind of stuff. Uh, let me just help you a little bit, starting with reading some text from our account, and then let's talk about the, the central place of David and how he fits in Scripture. So hang in there. I'm going to help you to become an Old Testament expert in like five minutes. Okay? Um, not really, but to understand the Bible, there are certain pieces of furniture um, in the Old Testament living room, if you will, in the biblical living room, that you really need to understand where they fit. And if you understand where they fit, the rest of the Bible makes a lot of sense. Okay? Just listen um, to what is said in Luke's Gospel alone, what we've been seeing so far about Jesus and his relationship to David. 
Luke one twenty seven, a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. That's super important. Now let's keep reading. We'll see why. Uh, verse 32, chapter 1. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. His actual father was Joseph. But his father, David, greater picture there, uh, verse 69, and has raised up a horn or a, a strength, a force of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Luke 2, 4, and Joseph also went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. See, there's a reason why Jesus is born in Bethlehem, the city of David. Luke 2.11, for unto you was born this day in the city of David. That's because it's Bethlehem, a Savior who is Christ, who is Messiah, the Lord. Luke 3.31, the son of Malia, this is the uh, genealogy, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. And so we're seeing it playing out in the gospel account that Jesus is tied to David. Let's just look at it on a basic level. If you know nothing about anything, you read uh, the first six chapters and you go, hmm, something about David is important. He's not actually the son of David because he's the son of Joseph. Who is this David guy? Oh, I remember Sunday school stories and they talked about David and David's important. David is a king and David and Saul, David and Goliath. And, and, and somehow he's significant there's one key text that really helps, and that's 2 Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, this is one of those key pieces of furniture in your, your Bible living room, okay? You've got to know where it goes. It's God's promise to David. God's promise to David the king. Uh, in fancier terms, God's covenant, God's contract of promise he made with and to David. 2 Samuel 7 is that passage. And there God promises to David that he will give him a throne. He will give him dominion. He will give him rulership. And he will rule forever. And yet in the same passage, he talks about David's death. So it can't be actual David who's going to experience this. But it's in the line of David. And it can't be David's actual next son. It can't be Solomon because he's going to die. It's got to be someone greater, someone who's being anticipated as coming. And Jesus is showing us by where he's born, who he's related to, what he has the power to do. He's the one. He's the one who's going to come and bring freedom to his people. It's so interesting in the same passage, just a little earlier in 2 Samuel 7, that God promises to bring His people through the Messiah rest. Ah, oh, there's a connection between the greater coming ultimate ruler, eternal David one, and bringing rest, ultimate rest for the people of God. Oh, Sabbath is crucial in the life and ministry of Jesus if he's the ultimate David. Oh, by the way, let me help you on another level in case you need a little bit more help. Just, just know that uh, in the Old Testament, Messiah is anointed one. God anoints kings he officially recognizes them and they'd have a ceremony where they would anoint them with oil but it was very symbolic that god is god is affirming that person as a king that word is messiah so david was a kind of messiah let's call it lowercase m david certainly was a messiah in the old testament an anointed king from god a mashiach 
But there's got to be a greater Mashiach, greater Messiah in the line of David, according to that huge, huge piece of furniture promised in the Old Testament. The Jews knew it wasn't fulfilled in David because David had a funeral. They knew it wasn't fulfilled in Solomon because Solomon had a funeral. So there's a messianic expectation. When is the real rest going to come? When is God, God going to make do on his promise? When, 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 when? Oh, and by the way, in the New Testament, every time you see the word Christ, that's just the New Testament Greek way of saying Mashiach, Messiah. Jesus Christ. Jesus Messiah. Jesus King. Jesus Anointed One. How about this? Jesus, the one who would come in the line of David. Jesus, the ultimate Davidic king. Jesus, the the eternal one, because he's got to rule forever, according to 2 Samuel 7, who will bring perfect rest, Sabbath. The Bible's not that complicated. And if you figure out that last little five minutes of of what I'm trying to explain to you, it's going to help you read the Bible and it's going to make so much more sense. Oh, oh, Jesus is son of David. Jesus is ultimate Messiah. Jesus is anointed king. Jesus is Christ. Jesus is the one who promises and will bring the peace. No wonder. And here we are as Christians, we celebrate Jesus Christ, the eternal reigning king who will return and rule and reign forever oh the forever part that fits with god's old promise man that was worth the price of admission i wish somebody would have laid it out that simple for me a long time ago jesus is extraordinary these religious leaders should be seeing him for who he is but they're not but everything points to him being the one and then look at verse five with me if you would where it says and he said to them The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. One more big piece of furniture, okay? (laughs) It's going to help you. Son of Man, Lord of Sabbath. Whatever he's saying, we don't even need the piece of furniture. We we can understand. Jesus is claiming to be Son of Man, and he's claiming to be the the, the Lord of the Sabbath. Who can say what's a violation of Sabbath and what's not a violation of the Sabbath? The one who's above Sabbath, the one who is Lord of Sabbath. He has every right to speak. He has every right to say what needs to be said. He knows. He can cut through all the the quote-unquote sacred tradition that really isn't. What a great Savior he is, the one we trust in. He's Lord of the Sabbath. But it's really important that other piece of furniture that's going to help you in reading the gospel accounts from the Old Testament is Son of Man, that title. And this is where sometimes we as Sunday school teachers um, and new Bible teachers need to repent. And so we'll have a special altar call afterward that we can repent of doing this. But I'm just kidding. Um, Son of Man, so many times in a commentary, will say that's emphasizing his humanity. Maybe it is on some kind of level. But Son of Man, borrowed from the Old Testament, connecting the dots, fitting things together. Daniel 7, I confuse those two passages because they're similar. 2 Samuel 7, Daniel 7, both are messianic promises, prophecies. Daniel 7 talks about one like a Son of Man 
who will come and he, the emphasis is, he will rule forever. He's eternal. I don't think the emphasis there is on his humanity. He will reign forever. It's on his messiahship. It's on his eternality, if anything. And how about that? Jesus, by saying what he's saying, is, is showing time and time again that he's the one. It's, it centers on him. He's the focus of the whole thing. Daniel 7, 13. He's the deliverer. He's the king. He's the Messiah. He's the eternal ruler. So he's not going to have the kind of funeral that Solomon had. He's not going to have the kind of funeral that David had. Oh, yes, by the way, he dies, but he rises again from the dead. He's the one. And he's called the Lord of the Sabbath. Messiah is Lord of the Sabbath. If David has special privileges, taking us back to our text, if David has special privileges, you ain't seen nothing. Because <laughs> we're talking about the ultimate David. The ultimate David. By way of application, because we all just got PhDs in Old Testament, right? You're going, man, that was nothing. Come on. By way of application, let's just keep it simple and say this. Our greatest need, just like their greatest need in all of life, is to see Jesus for who he really is. Ponder that with me, if you would. The greatest need these guys had, the greatest need we have, is to see Jesus for who he really is. It's so good that Jesus came here to issue gag orders, if you will, on these Pharisees. To shine the light and expose them. Even though people might have said he was mean or ungracious or unkind. How gracious and kind and loving for him to do that so that we could then see Jesus for who he really is. And if Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, we can go to him to find out what's truly honoring to God and not honoring to God. And we don't need so-called sacred tradition. He unmasks the whole thing. And we can see that He is the eternal promised one in the line of David who will bring for His people aha, rest. What a need we have for that. But here, here, here's what's happening. The law of God is a burden because we're sinners. According to our nature, we've got a problem obeying God. And so the law of God is this burden on us. It's not easy. We can't do it. We can't live up to the standard. So that's a burden. But then we get the double whammy, whoop-de-doo kind of thing. I don't know what it is. It's worse because, worse for us, the good law of God is a burden. It's not God's fault. The law isn't bad. It's good as Paul would say elsewhere. But then we've got this double whammy over here. We have people taking the good law of God and somehow putting a spin on it and building on it with extra rules and regulations. And now all of a sudden we're dogged over here too. I got this huge burden. It's a massive burden. I'm supposed to do what God says and I can't do that. And then I'm supposed to do what you say and I can't do that. And then I'm supposed to do what these other people tell me to do. And some of them have a long religious heritage and they seem to know what they're talking about. And they have sacred tradition on their side. And it's like, oh, it's like a mountain hanging from a hair. 
Our great need is to see Jesus for who He is. He's the one who brings the rest. I love that passage in Matthew 11. I couldn't help but mentally go there. Where Jesus says to people like you and like me, you know, He says, come to me. Come to me all who are what? weary and heavy burdened or heavy laden, whichever translation you have. Come to me all who are weary. Come, come to me all who have that burden and I will give you what? I'll give you Sabbath, right? I will give you rest. I'm the one. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I will give you ultimate Sabbath. I will give you rest. And where does our rest come from? Ultimately, He is our Sabbath. We go to Him. How great is that? You can go to Jesus Christ. That's the great need to see him for who he is so that you can go to Jesus so you don't have the true law of God bearing down on you anymore because he's the fulfiller of that law, Matthew chapter 5. And you don't have the human law bearing down on you anymore and you're doing the, you know, Braveheart thing, crying, freedom! Right? Yeah! But the brave heart thing is wanting the freedom but not having the freedom. We're talking about having the freedom. So good. Our Lord Jesus is so good. we got to see Him for who He is. Let's see what He does here as gracious, wonderful, compassionate acts of love for the sheep. Because that's what's happening. So good. I have to tell you, I didn't want to come to church this morning. <laughs> Don't show me hands. <laughs> You're thinking, I think that every week, pal. Um, <laughs> I'm like, you know what? You know how life goes? It's ebbing and flowing and up and down. And I'm thinking, this is about the last thing in the world I want to do. Um, that's just how it is sometimes. I'm just thankful I, would, I was able to come and, and hear songs about Jesus and salvation in Jesus. I knew that that's what was going to happen here. We were essentially singing about rest in Him. I knew all this stuff. It's just so good that God in His infinite wisdom doesn't call us to live our Christian lives alone. Good in God's infinite wisdom again and again. We already know what it's about. We already kind of know the deal. We sang a new song today. We already knew what it was about. <laughs> Theology wasn't new. It's the same thing. I'm so thankful. So thankful for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I knew it before I came here, but I'm so thankful that we're being reminded together complemented by the singing and the, the giving and the praying and the fellowshipping. It's like just one great big reminder about Christ and His greatness. By the way, guess what we're going to do next Sunday? First service I talked about, I'm being thankful for how boring church is. I'm so glad church is boring. <laughs> and in an age where I've got to have new and exciting and this and that, I've never, they've never done that before in church. I'm just so thankful that church is boring. I knew what the new song was about before we even sang it. That's how boring church is. Maybe boring's the bad word, but it's good shock value. It's predictable. It's so easy to wonder. It's so easy to be prone to wonder, and we do. And Jesus knows this. 
So here we are seeing that Jesus relieves our burdens. I needed to be reminded that I can go to him and my burden would be taken away. It's already been taken away. I just needed to be reminded of it. Let's move on. A second occasion. I had some more application, but it'll make me feel guilty, so we're going to move on. Um, (laughs) Not really. We'll save it for the end. Next occasion, same kind of thing. Verse 6, it says, On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. Remember, synagogues were like satellites. Okay, so if you can't go to Jerusalem, you can't go to the temple, which is central um, to everything. It's where God uniquely met with his people. If you can't go there, um, week in and week out, you'd go to a synagogue. Um, small buildings, uh, generally speaking, in this region it would have been. Um, in a rebuilt one I've been in, in the region would be, let's just divide over here about that size, everybody over here, that would be like synagogue size, so not a big, grandiose kind of place. Uh, remember, in the synagogues where the, the law of God would be read, um, they would stand to read the law of God, and then those qualified who would do that, they would sit down and they would teach. And remember, from our study of Luke, and if you don't remember, I'll remind you, that people were flocking to hear Jesus. In fact, it said in Luke 4.15, Jesus was praised by all. You had your favorite Pharisaic expositors, you know, that weren't on the radio or podcasting back then, but still you would have said, oh good, you know, so-and-so is going to read the scripture today and explain the scripture and, and he really does a good job of explaining it and I can understand it better and all that stuff would have been going on. And here Jesus is praised by all. They totally want to come and hear him because he speaks differently. He doesn't quote other rabbis. He just explains it in a way that makes sense to people. It's right there before their very eyes. They're drawn to him. But that also is elevating the risk level if you are a Pharisee. You're losing power. You're losing control. You either better bow the knee to Jesus that he's the ultimate David or get rid of him. And so think about that as we... Read verse 7. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Picture what it would be like in the synagogue. The Pharisees, we know, like pomp and circumstance. They, they liked to dress special. They liked everybody to know when they were fasting. Uh, they were about the self-glory. So a room jam-packed and all of these people, they're excited to hear Jesus. But you've got the Pharisees on the sly wanting to watch with their beady eyes. Sorry, I'm not assuming you all over there have beady eyes. Um, they're noticed. They're noticeable. and They're just waiting for Jesus to do the wrong thing. Then verse 8. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. Verse 9, And Jesus said to them, I ask you. I wonder if it was one of those, if they're in the back of the room, I don't know where they would have been sitting. He's talking to the crowd. I ask you, laser eyes. Don't know for sure, but they're being called out. They're being challenged. Is it lawful, verse 9? On the Sabbath, to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? 
just think like you're one of the bad guys for a minute. You're going, well, uh, um, uncomfortable pause, uncomfortable silence, maybe. Jesus is waiting for the answer. And you're like, well, gee, um, uh, at least in your head. Well, when you put it like that, it's a false choice. We, we, we don't want to answer. I choose C, not A or B. Jesus, because he loves us, is exposing the ridiculous nature of legalism so often purported or promoted in the name of sacred tradition, which comes from a failure to see him for who he really is. We can be thankful for that. Verse 10 says, And after looking around at them all, that's an interesting correspondence because verse 7 has them watching with their beady eyes. He looks back at them. There's the exchange of glances or stare downs. He said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. If you're Pharisees, you know, you're, that's work, that's work. (laughs) That's harvesting, that's harvesting. You know, we've all experienced people kind of do that sort of thing. Not just then, but now. I've just been waiting to see you do the wrong thing. You're caught, you're busted. You're like, dude, you know. Jesus talked and and he was healed, that's work. (laughs) You go, it's so absolutely crazy. I mean, Jesus didn't lift a finger. He just said it and it was so and the accusation, we know what the accusation would be. It's, he worked. He healed. He he helped somebody. Just to help us to understand just how perverse this is, you you could help animals on the Sabbath This is what happens with our rules and laws that aren't biblical laws and aren't biblical rules. And we build them up and build them up and build them up and build them up and we have rules about the rules. We end up doing the very thing that would be most displeasing to God in this case. He could help him. He could love his neighbor by not lifting a finger, but he isn't going to because surely that's not what God would want. This is crazy. Jesus exposes the crazy. This isn't the first time Jesus has done this, but he's once again showing kindness, love, compassion, supernatural power. As we've talked about other times, it's showing that that he actually is the king because it's a taste of the coming kingdom where everything's fixed. It's all that, but it's more. He's exposing lies to help us and help them. Now let me ask you, what, what, what should be the question here? You know, what, what does the white space between verse 10 and 11 uh, say? There is no white space, but what, what's going to be just normal? What's natural? 
The natural thing, if your whole life you've been saying, when is David coming? When is Messiah coming? When is Messiah coming? Your whole life has been about that. Your whole life has been teaching about the Davidic covenant and explaining God's covenant loyalty and his faithfulness and uh, emphasizing peace with God and emphasizing so you've got shalom, you've got Shabbat, you've got Shabbat shalom, you've got all, you've got all, your whole life has been this. And now, once again, not through some sort of trickery, not through some sort of emotionalism or subjective kind of thing, before your very eyes, everything is matched. This isn't the first time. Jesus yet again shows that he has the supernatural power to do this, that he's truly and genuinely the one. The natural response in the white space should be, Praise God! The Messiah is here! This is what we've been waiting for, for the Messiah, for, for the, for the Pharisees to come clean and to tell the people, He was the one we've been telling you about. He's the one that you learned about in, in Shabbat school on the flannel graphs. I mean, He, He was the long expected one. He's it! They should do a John the Baptist write about here and say, He must increase, we'll decrease. That's the right response. But it says in verse 11 that they were filled with fury. It's this indignation word. It's this they can't see straight word. They're so angry. They're filled with fury and discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. And we know what they're going to do and we know what they're going to plan to do. It's the exact opposite thing. And let everyone here today know, and let me be reminded as well, that this is a, this is a great reminder to us about the state of the human heart apart from God's intervening grace. I mean, th- this, this is just a great one to see. This is a great, great picture of the human heart and what it's capable of. This is, this, this is, don't confuse us with the facts. They're not being rational. Don't confuse us with the facts. We know what we believe and what we've taught. So we're going to figure out a way to kill him. It should be, that's so startling. So amazing. It's helpful to know on lots of different levels. All the evidences are there. People who say they would believe and repent and trust in Jesus if Jesus appeared to them don't know what they're talking about. That's not historic. It's good for us to even praise God here. We, we know the Pharisees are the bad guys. And we know we're the good guys. <laughs> It's good for us to realize that apart from God's grace, we're Pharisees. And we'd be chiming right in with them. And so as we think about legalism and we talk about legalism, we praise God that Jesus exposes it for what it is. But it is helpful to realize that that person you met this morning when you turned the bathroom light on, that frightening person is more frightening on the inside apart from God's grace. The great Pharisee self. The great Pharisee self. Rules, regulations, self-righteousness, looking down on others. We've, we've totally been there. 
if we're not there. It's so good to see that we need Jesus. Now, please don't misunderstand. It's not just ourselves. You should watch out for legalists outside of you and Pharisees. You should also watch out for that great Pharisee inside that ultimately dethrones Jesus and tries to steal glory away from him. Because I do, I do, I do. The reality is, Jesus says, you come to me and I'll give you rest. It's in him. He fulfilled the law. And he exposed the hucksterism with pseudo-law. Your hope and my hope, our greatest hope is in Christ Jesus the Lord. And a great way to see legalism is to keep looking at Jesus. Whether it's in your life or in other people's lives. Great thing to know, you can be forgiven of your legalism. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and he was forgiven by his Lord Jesus. The atoning work of Jesus is powerful enough to bring forgiveness to anybody. Let's leave today praising Christ, worshiping Christ, maybe like we haven't before, maybe in a renewed sense, that he's willing to do the conflict because he loves us, because apart from him doing it, we would be in bondage to ourselves and we'd be in bondage to one another and we'd be in bondage to others. What a great Savior. What a great, great Savior Jesus is. Let's thank him. Father, thank you for uh, giving your son Jesus to us. Thank you for this great rescue mission that he was on when he came to earth. And we're grateful that he did these kinds of things. Help us to be discerning. Help us to to seek uh, faithfulness. Um, Even seeking to love you and to love you passionately and wanting to do the right and biblical thing. While at the same time knowing that our ultimate hope is in Jesus. Help us to get things in the right order. To want to do the right things. Because Jesus is a great savior. And not out of self-righteousness. Thank you so much that you don't give us what we deserve. Thank you for our hope. In Jesus' name, amen.